morning. Today's teaching text is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 29. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in the, spi- in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
Could this be the Messiah? The Word of God for the people of God. Well, welcome again to First Free. My name is Matt. I serve as pastor here. Um, are we big Super Bowl people? Anyone? At, at least Adolfo raised his hand. Um, you know, I'm talking a little bit about unity and division, and so I don't know if 49ers and Chiefs friends, those are the teams, right, could be, uh, could be united today. What I, I'm not going to be able to see the game tonight. I'm not going to be able to watch the game. I'm in this retreat program where I go on these quarterly retreats, and it was scheduled years in, uh, you know, a few years in advance, and so one of them lands tonight, so I won't be watching the game. I'll be away from my phone and computer and everything for three days. So I'll have no idea how it turns out. And what I'm most sad about missing is not who wins, but have you heard of the, like, Taylor Swift conspiracy? <laughs> Uh, apparently, her and Travis Kelsey, um, they're not a real couple. They were put together uh, by the government so that, when, and, the, and it's not going to be a real game. When the Chiefs win, that was all planned by the government so that Taylor Swift can go on stage and say, I endorse Joe Biden, and all of America will love her because of football and whatever. So I want to know if she does that or not. Um, that's what I'm dying to know. We'll see. Uh, maybe, maybe that was a strange way to open too political already. But, it, but if that gets you to stop listening, then uh, we're going much deeper. Um, anyways, the, the reality is, uh, in a lot of ways, we are living through our own generational moment of division and disunity. Uh, as churches... As the Christian church, um, our country, this country, is of course more and more polarized, um, so much so that we end up with Taylor Swift conspiracies, but so is the church. Um, so is the church. It's not like we can stand from our ivory tower and say, shame on you, America, because the church is just as divided. Churches, not just in our country, but around the world, are wrestling with cultural disruption, with how to respond or even label things as injustice, what to do about still what we're reeling through with the pandemic, what to do about deconstruction. And the truth is we found ourselves ideologically and theologically separated. Ideologically and theologically separated from the people we once worshipped besides. Um, This is true on a large scale. This is also true for our church. Like for some of you, that might even just hit right in the heart. Oh yeah, people I used to sit next to and sing praise to Jesus with no longer sit next to me um, because of a divide in our very specific church. And pastors, clergy, leaders, teachers, people like me who who stand on this stage, we often find ourselves in the middle of this widening gap. People are on either side. Or perhaps we land on one side of the gap, and it just goes larger and larger to those on the other side. This massive expanse that just seems to grow larger after each event, 
After each sermon, if you say the wrong thing, after each email, and it can feel insurmountable. This is true for church leaders. It's also, of course, true for you, for the communities that we serve. Small groups, friends, families, all these things are experiencing more division and disunity like never before. You, like me, may be wondering, amidst all this division and disunity, what can keep us together? What can actually keep us together? Is there something that can actually sustain our shared life together? Is there something strong enough to unite us, even when so much seems set to tear us apart? What can keep us together? For a while now, the answer at large has been walls. The next slide can go up. Walls. If there was just more clarity in our community about sort of who's in and who's out, if if we were clear about those things, then maybe we wouldn't be so tempted to divide when a cultural thing pops up, you know, because we already know what we agree about and what really matters. We have these walls. Maybe these walls could be things like, let's say, beliefs about God. That can go up. Now, that's important, right? Uh, Things like the Trinity, Jesus rising from the dead. We can probably find some common ground and agree about these beliefs about God. And maybe then we'll continue to create the structure with another wall like beliefs about the Bible. Considering that's our primary text. It's our sacred scriptures. We could probably find some stuff we agree about. A clear wall. Okay. And then uh, you're thinking, okay, well, what, uh, what else do we all agree about? Oh, I know. Let's, uh, how about beliefs about marriage? Let's just throw that on there. Uh, many people say that's important. So let's make that non-negotiable. Man and woman married for life. And 75 years ago, this would have been a pretty clear wall. There wouldn't have been much disagreement. So, okay, we'll put that up there. The fourth one, I don't know, let's say beliefs about the Holy Spirit. Seems pretty clear. Jesus talks about it. Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit. We need it. It's important. Great. These are our walls. They'll help us know who's in, and they'll keep us safe. Isn't that what walls do? They keep us safe. How lovely. Here's the thing, though. Like the first century church, which we'll dive into in a bit, we are in a cultural moment in which our walls are being challenged. All of them. And in fact, some people maybe never agreed with the walls we thought we all agreed about in the first place. Uh, Let's take that fourth one, the Holy Spirit, for example. It seems like we should all agree. Oh, the Holy Spirit is real, is the third person of the Trinity, is equal to God. Okay, there's a lot of common ground. Great. But when does the Spirit come upon us as believers? Is it when we accept Jesus? 
in a prayer? Is it when we are physically baptized? Is it something like a second baptism where the Holy Spirit rushes upon us and we start speaking in tongues? Oh, yeah. Oh, is speaking in tongues even acceptable today? Is it required? Is prophecy possible? What about physical healing? There starts to be some cracks in the wall. You can go to the next slide. This wall that was supposed to protect or clearly define starts to get some cracks in it. What do we do? Churches split over this, over these things. Churches divide. Denominations get started. And for other folks, the walls are coming down because of a conflict with tradition. Think about marriage. Now again, there there might have been a time 75 years ago where people, at least on the surface, all agreed about this. Um, It was clear. Or so they thought. But it's becoming more and more complex. So now, questions 75 years ago start get asked. Is divorce okay? Is it ever okay? Some Christians, based on their interpretation of Scripture, say, no, it's never okay. Others say, yes. And there's a crack in the wall. Okay, but at least we agree then, some say yes, that they all agree, okay, sometimes it's permissible. But there's a disagreement about when and why it's permissible. Is it only in cases of adultery? Does that just mean physical adultery? What about an emotional affair? Uh, Or is it just in cases of abuse? Is that just physical abuse? Is that emotional abuse? How do you even define that? What about pornography? Is that an affair? What about if one of the spouses leaves the faith? Well, is it just my stream of the faith? Christianity as a whole? Uh, Cracks and cracks. Okay. So at least the community agrees that sometimes, for certain reasons, even if we don't agree on them, divorce is permissible. But then what about remarriage? Some faithful Christians say scripture says that is actually never allowed if you follow the rule of the law. Others say it is. Another crack. Okay. Well then, we go even further into our culture today. What about same-sex marriage? Should it be legal? Is it a sin? Is it the orientation of someone that's sinful or just the action? Faithful Christians disagree. Can God bless a same-sex union? Can God bless a same-sex marriage? Faithful, biblically informed Christians disagree. And the cracks keep coming up and multiplying until there's not much of a wall left. You can think about it like if you're doing repairs on a home and there's like a weak spot in the wall. Maybe there's like a water spot showing up. And first you're like, well, maybe I'll just paint over it. And then it starts showing up again through the paint. So you're like, okay, I'll just kind of, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to do drywall. I'll cut out like this, the square of where there's the, the water spot and I'll fix that. But then when you take that little piece of drywall down, you see maybe there's like termites who are eating at the 
two by four structure underneath it. And you start trying to figure out how do you fix that. And you pull something down and you pull something down until you're left with no wall anymore. And you didn't go into it saying, I want to tear down this wall that was keeping my house together and keeping me safe. You were just dealing with the problem that was at hand and all of a sudden you're deconstructing. You didn't plan to do it. You weren't seeking to do it. You weren't hoping, how can I destroy this thing that kept me warm and safe? But problems arise and walls come down. And in our cultural moment, dissatisfied people are pulling on these spots of their walls that don't seem to be working regarding race, regarding politics, regarding injustice, regarding gender. And they're saying, things keep coming down with it. I didn't mean for that to happen. And it's these walls, maybe that were connected to their faith, that kept them safe and secure. But walls are coming down. And for others, these walls are being deconstructed because in church they experienced pain or abuse. Or they pay any attention to church news and notice leader after leader, moral failure after moral failure. They didn't go digging for it. But the walls are coming down. And this experience is difficult and painful. And for some of us, It can lead to the next slide. Complete destruction of the whole thing. If this one wall isn't so sturdy, I'm just going to tear them all down. I'm done with it. Blow the entire thing up and leave. No longer wanting to be bound by any of these walls. If I can't trust one, I can't trust the other. There's no imagination for a faith beyond walls. Some blow it up. The others say the problem is the wall wasn't strong enough, sturdy enough. Let's double down on the same walls. Let's just make them thicker, stronger. More structure, more support, more pieces to the wall to keep ourselves and our people safe. And we see both of these options, destroy the whole thing or build thicker walls, um, in our culture as well. Now, massive amounts of people are leaving the church, especially young people, because they pulled on the weak spot and the whole thing fell apart, at least in their eyes. And they're simply not interested by being bound by unhelpful and unhealthy walls anymore. So they blow up the whole thing and leave. On the other hand, you know what's actually on the rise in our country is fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism as well. That's saying... You know what? Because there's so much cultural change happening outside in the world, and it's scary, let's build thicker walls. Let's make it more clear, the boundaries of who's in, who's out. Let's make it more clear because people are scared and confused. What can keep us together? Are the only options to blow up the whole thing or to build thicker walls? What can keep us together? The early church often wrestled with uh, questions of unity amid deeply contentious and polarizing debates. 
One of the most prolonged debates of the early church, which I've talked about before, I'll talk about again, is Gentiles. What do we do with Gentile converts to the faith? And we see this all over the New Testament. And if you start reading it, looking for it, you will see it all over the New Testament. A major theme in the book of Acts. A major theme in the book of Ephesians. A ma- the, the primary theme in the book of Galatians. A major theme in the book of Romans. It just doesn't seem that interesting because it's not language we use today. So we don't think it's that, what, Gentile? What does that even mean? But these are major themes of what they were struggling with as a new church. And they were deeply divided. The church had to navigate a new cultural moment. And the thing about that one is it was actually brought about by the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're in this series, The Baby Changes Everything. And that's what was happening then. Because of Jesus arriving on the scene, because of the way he lived, then because of what his death and resurrection meant... And because his Holy Spirit was sent in response, they had to deal with all these things that weren't issues before. Because all of a sudden they noticed in people that weren't like them, the Holy Spirit was present. And that messes everything up. In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter, he received this clear and direct revelation from God that was instructing him to preach the gospel to these Gentiles, to these non-Jewish people, people who are not within the covenant of God. And he has, he has this dream where he sees all this food come down and God says, take, kill, and eat this stuff. And Peter's initial response is, no way am I doing that. That's impure, that's unclean. I'm a faithful follower of the Jewish God. No. And God says in this dream, who are you to tell me what is impure and unclean? And then Peter goes on and he encounters uh, these other Gentile believers and has this total change where, uh, I'll give you a line, he says in chapter 10, verse 34, he has this encounter. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is. That God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. I'm going to try and give a quick overview of Acts 10 and 11. I encourage you um, to spend some time in it this week. It's quite fantastic and much too long for me to cover here. But it's, um, if you're wondering, hey, I'd like to read some scripture this week. I'm not sure what. Uh, spend the whole week in Acts 10 and 11. See what God does. So Peter says this, he receives this clear and direct revelation from God, instructing him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's, you know, pretty revolutionary, but it's not causing too many problems yet. The problems occur once Gentiles start responding and saying, yeah, I want in. Like, I want to be in this family of God. And then those early Christians, those Jewish Christians, have to figure out what that means. Uh, How do you actually include these Gentiles into the life and way of Jesus? And the early church, we see in Acts, and later on in these epistles, they couldn't quite agree on it. It took Paul and Peter and the Spirit a lot of work to get them to say, okay, yes, you can actually belong. At the time, 
Christianity was a deeply Jewish expression of the faith. Um, The early followers were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Um, And in most ways, the early followers sought to uphold the practice and preservation of the Jewish law, of the law of Moses, the Torah. Uh, It's hard to overstate how important the Torah was and is currently for Jewish people. The Torah was given to them by God to help guide them and define them as a people. And in the Jewish history, we end up with, with this period of exile where they're kicked out of their country, driven out. And during that time, the Torah helps to shape their distinctive way of life. It helps to preserve their culture and their way of relating to their God. In the same way, the Torah was an essential part of Jewish life during Persian, Greek, and then later Roman subjugation. When they're overseen by these other cultures, they need to protect their own. And we modern Christians, we often see these 613 uh, laws in the Old Testament as sort of outdated commands. But for the people who had suffered exile, conquest, and near perpetual subjugation, the law, the Torah, was a kind of wall around their identity, around their unity, around their ethos as a people. It helped define and protect who they were. In moments of cultural chaos and confusion, they built higher walls to help define and protect their communal identity. It was essentially how they answered our question today, what can keep us together? For them, it was the Torah, the law of Moses. And that's why this issue of Torah observance was fiercely debated in the New Testament. Things like circumcision, which was a part of that law. Things like different dietary restrictions. They may seem strange to us when we encounter them in the New Testament. But for the first century Jewish Christians, they were important markers of identity and the means of preserving a God-given way of life. Now, in the early days of Christianity, following the resurrection and the Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit, Torah following, uh, Torah adherence, was the norm because the church was Jewish in its makeup, in its leadership, and even in its geography, where it existed in the world. However, as the gospel spread throughout Acts, and as Peter has this Acts 10 encounter, this once homogenous community was now forced to grapple with profound questions. Like, how do we include Gentiles into the life and body of Christ? Do we ask the Gentiles to conform to some, or all, or none of the Torah? And then... Whatever we choose, what does that mean for us? Imagine if we as a church were saying, hey, we want to include some people who weren't included. And we say, we're not going to make them do X, Y, or Z thing that we do. Then we're probably going to start to ask the question, well, then do we really have to do X, Y, or Z? And it's very disorienting. It really is. If they don't have to do it, do we still have to do it? But it was really important to us. But we're saying it's not that important to them. These are big questions. 
In Acts 11, so right after Peter has this vision, this debate kind of rises to a fever pitch, leading to a gathering in Jerusalem, right, in the, in the big city, where various church leaders come and they make their arguments. What should we do? Should they have to follow some, all, or none of the Torah? They make their arguments. Church leaders come and they hear other people as well. And this text begins as a sort of uh, drama. As Peter, who shows up fresh from his Acts 10 encounter, is, says, criticized by circumcised believers for violating the law. Look at Acts 11, verse 2 up here. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's sort of their big complaint right here. It's not even that you said they don't have to do this or don't have to do that. It's just that you sat and ate with them even. And then it says, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He's about to bear witness to what God had done through that vision and through his interactions with Gentiles. He's about to give testimony to God's spirit in his life. He tells them the whole story. Uh, It says he explains to them sort of step by step what God had done in his life. All about his experience from chapter 10. And then by verse 18... This is how they respond. Go to the next slide. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. (laughs) And you would think that would be the end of the debate. Great! But a few chapters later, four chapters later, in Acts 15... This all comes up again. Church leaders once again gather to address the issue of Gentile inclusion. Acts 15.1, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, the law of Moses, the Torah, you cannot be saved. Read that again. It ends with what? You cannot be saved. They were saying, not only, hey, we think it would be a good practice for some of these Gentiles to engage in circumcision, or it's probably a good idea, or for our particular church, you cannot be saved. They were arguing that Torah adherence, a.k.a. in this, the custom taught by Moses the law, that it was a salvation level issue. It doesn't get more intense than that. And the debate escalates. And in just the next verse, in 15.2, it says that Paul and Barnabas strongly opposed this position. So Peter has this vision in Acts 10 that declares the full inclusion of Gentiles. But it takes the early church years of fighting, 
gathering, discerning, and debating to accept the revelation as true and actionable for their communities. And this is a bit depressing, but also a bit encouraging for us today, that uh, even kind of that close to the action, that close to the resurrection of Jesus, the church was struggling with how do we understand what keeps us together? What really keeps us together? We've always struggled as a church to preserve the unity of Christ, and yet God continues to be gracious to us. But here is the church in Acts 15, and one group of Christians is saying that in order to be followers of Jesus, of the Jewish Messiah, you have to adhere to the Jewish law of Moses, which includes circumcision. This isn't that crazy of an argument. If you want to follow the God who came to save the Jews, you should become a Jew. Hence, you can be saved. It's a wall. It's saying, if you want to encounter God, come to this other side of the wall that we're on. And this particular wall is circumcision. Uh, Do this particular thing. This is the clarity that they're offering. It's an us versus them clarity. And for some, clarity is very compelling. If you want in, do this thing. And that particular practice, you knew if you did it or not. Uh, There wasn't much mystery around, did I get it right or not? Um, And they're saying, you know, they're probably thinking, hey, we're being inclusive. Like, you can become a Christian, you just have to do it our way. You can have this Jesus, but you have to become one of us first. And so chapter 15, where this is happening, continues in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that, let's be honest, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Just as they are. What I want you to see that Peter is doing there is he's cutting through the debates. He's not minimizing the importance of the law by any means. But instead, he's drawing Jew and Gentile together around one shared center. He's saying, we were saved in the same way that they were saved. There's this unifying center, the person and work of Jesus. Wall can't really keep us together. 
Spiritually speaking, walls are only ever good to divide. Walls can't really keep us together. And as soon as someone ends up on the other side of a wall, let's say it's an ideological wall about, could be anything, can the Holy Spirit, about marriage. As soon as you end up on the other side of a wall, that wall has no power over you. It's like, it doesn't do anything to you. It's powerless. Spiritually speaking, walls are only ever good to divide. And this is why Ephesians 2.14 so beautifully declares our new wall-less reality in Christ. Let me read this. I love this verse. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. How? By setting aside in his own flesh the law and its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Christ's work is destroying walls. But if not walls, how do we know who's in? If not walls, what will keep us together? The subtext of this series is five shifts for becoming a Jesus-centered community. If not walls, what can keep us together? And the suggestion, or the question is, what if we were defined by our shared center instead of the lines we draw? Um... Ranchers do this sort of thing. Ranchers do this thing. You know, if you have a small ranch, uh, Becca is, is not in here right now. She's from, oh, yes, she is. She's from Texas, so she can, you know, just ask her all these ranching questions. But uh, small ranches got fences. You know, maybe you got three acres, five acres. Put a fence around it. The fences... Hopefully, if they're doing their job, they keep the cattle in. They keep your horses from running off and being wild, wild horses. They protect the animals from the predators on the outside, perhaps. It's good. But if you are a rancher and you've got a huge amount of land, huge amount of acreage, you're actually an expansive rancher, you wouldn't be able to build fences around your whole property. It would just be too cost prohibitive and too time intensive, right? We're talking 100 acres, 100 acre woods. We're talking a lot of land that you would have to build a fence around. You simply wouldn't do it. It's also not the smartest way to do it. What do you do instead? You build a well. You build a well because 
then the animals won't go too far away. Because they know they need water. They need sustenance. They need what the well has to offer. Their life literally depends on not wandering too far away from their water source. This is not just uh, an analogy. This is really how, how ranchers do it. They'll build more than one well. But instead of focusing on the fences, they focus on the source of nourishment for their cattle. And so what if we were defined by our shared center instead of the lines we draw, instead of the fences, instead of the walls? Um, <clears throat> there was a missionary named Paul Hebert. And uh, he was a professor at, I didn't have him, but at, at my alma mater where I went to grad school, Fuller uh, Seminary. He was also a professor at the seminary that got its start from the history of our church, Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School. He was a professor there. He, um, I believe he was in India, but I could be wrong about that, I forget. But he was, uh, the, the, the fancy word they use is missiologist, which for many years of my life I did not know was a thing. It's someone who studies missions, right? So then it makes sense, a missiologist. So Paul Hebert, and Paul Hebert was, uh, offered something really beautiful to the church because he did his undergrad studies in math. Most seminarians, math is not their strong suit. So God graciously, through Paul Hebert's math studies, offered something to the church and to the field of missiology of uh, bounded versus centered set. This is a math concept that I don't really know about, but he applies it to the faith. So, bounded versus centered set. Let me talk about those. They're kind of the same idea of fences and wells. But I want to talk about that. The bounded set is built with walls, with fences. So this is a bounded set right here. Um, It's clear who's in and who's out. You can very clearly point to it. Do they adhere to whatever those walls are? Could be beliefs about whatever, could be certain ways of living. Whatever the wall is, the positive part of this set is it's clear. You know, you can even look around a room and and sort of say, oh, these are the people who belong with me. And it can create um, a certain type of community that is uh, very enjoyable to be a part of. You know who's in and who's out. But there's some negative side effects to that clarity as well. One, particularly if you're someone who's outside of those walls, is that it can feel judgmental, right? Exclusive, divisive. Uh, It can feel impossible to, how do I actually get involved into this thing if I don't fit within the walls? Can I be a part? To what level? it's kind of scary, right? Let's say you're, it's, a, it's a church. It has these clear walls, and you're a brand new uh, follower of Jesus who maybe you want your life to look even like their walls, but it doesn't yet. And you're wondering, can I even go and be a part of this thing? Right? It's extremely intimidating for someone who's new to the faith or just has questions. This sort of thing doesn't really foster curiosity or questions because 
If you are inside, but you start asking questions about those walls, people might automatically assume you should be on the other side of the wall. It's not great for doubts or processing faith. It's not very safe. But it's not just detrimental to those outside the walls. I think what's most negative about it is actually for those inside the walls. You know what can happen to your faith? If you're in a bounded set and you're an insider, your faith can very easily become stagnant. Why? Because you're in. You achieved it. You check all the boxes. You believe all the right things. And so a community that is bounded, that you fit into, can actually be detrimental to your faith. You've arrived. You agree with all the right things. You live the right way. You're a real Christian. This won't do much to spur you on to growth. This won't do much to cause you to actually become more like Jesus, to become a person of Christ-shaped love. And the thing is, with bounded communities, people will naturally gravitate to the community that is most like them. If you happen to be a more conservative person, there are certainly conservative evangelical or fundamentalist churches that make it pretty darn awesome to be a part of them. I will say, speaking from my vantage point as a straight white male, um, there are some fences that really served me well for many years um, because I fit in. Uh, If one fence was you must be sort of heterosexual and you must understand gender in a traditional way and wives should submit to their husbands, I was benefiting in quite a lot of ways. Now, maybe they have some rules around dancing, but, you know, I didn't have rhythm anyway, so that wasn't much of a problem. I was kind of like Elaine, you know, from Seinfeld. Anyway, uh, you know, maybe they have a rule about tithing 10%, but with, with a good salary, that's no problem. You fit within the boundaries. You're in. You're a Christian. And so that can really benefit you. For others, if you're of a more progressive bent, maybe, you know, you've got one of those signs in your yard that says, in this house, we believe. And you've got, you know, the creed, science is real, uh, love is love, all the different things. You can find a church, uh, probably a liberal mainline church, that will, will tick all the boxes and will make you feel extremely welcome and like you've made it. Because you now their boundaries probably won't be as articulate and clear written out in policies, but you kind of know who's in and who's not when you attend for a while. You've made it. You can finally take a breather and relax. Ah, I'm a real Christian now. I've done it. Do you see how either one, right, on either end of these communities, your faith starts to stagnate? Uh, there's no longer a driving force towards deeper discipleship, towards deeper union with Christ, towards a deeper reliance on the Holy Spirit to guide and sustain your life. Now, in contrast to a bounded community, I want you to look at the centered set. Okay? Um, Here there are no walls. And you might say, this just looks like chaos. (laughs) But... um, The community is made up of people oriented 
towards a shared center or not. So here you see the people have movement. And you can see, are they going towards the center or are they going away from the center? Now, if the center is uh, deep enough, good enough, true enough, it will always draw you deeper in. And what I like about this is it acknowledges that the human experience is always dynamic. It's not static. We're always going somewhere. We're always moving in some direction, whether it's towards the center, whether it's towards Christ or away. This is simply what it means to be human. And you can be one of the people who fits within the bounded set at a church and actually be oriented away from Jesus for a season. Sometimes the person who's been a Christian for 50 years and it kind of ticks all the boxes is actually just in a slow drift away from the center. Why else would Jesus rebuke a church in Revelation saying, you you fell away from your first love? In a bounded set community, there's actually less of a way to identify when someone is slowly drifting away from Jesus. The bounded set allows for stagnation while the centered set facilitates transformation. We're always moving. The centered community opens up space as well for hospitality, for belonging, for inclusivity, because it invites everyone into ongoing discipleship and transformation, because none of us have arrived. Now, there are people closer to the center who may look more and more like Jesus, but there are also people farther away from the center, who maybe are just making their first turn towards Jesus. And they get to participate as well. What if we were so centered on Jesus and empowered by the Spirit that we could discern together how to be a church? I mean, what could unity in Christ look like for us? for our families, for our friends, for our small groups and communities? What if we built wells instead of fences? I'm coming to a close today. In the text that Tom read this morning from the Gospel of John, there's a similar logic at work. Jesus is crossing all these lines that he shouldn't. And I can't go into all of that today for the sake of time, But he's showing up in Samaria, where he shouldn't, at a well, probably alone with a woman, where he shouldn't be, who he shouldn't be talking to. And the text itself tells us Jews and Samaritans were deeply divided. They shouldn't be together. They shouldn't be interacting in this way. This shouldn't be happening. There's a wall that we've built against this to protect The way things ought to be. But Jesus shows up at a well. And he tells this woman. He says, you know, there's a spiritual well that truly satisfies. 
And then he tells her things that he shouldn't know about her, but he does. And, and she starts to say, this guy might be the Messiah. And then when she thinks he might be the Messiah, this is what I love. Jesus is crossing all these boundaries. She thinks, I might be encountering the Messiah. And her first question is basically, what should the wall be? Who is right about God? She says, you know, we, Samaritans, we believe that we should worship God on this mountain. But the Jews say we have to worship God in Jerusalem. Who's right? Tell me what the wall is so I can be safe. So I can know that I'm right. And of course we want to know that. Which one is it? She says. And Jesus answers in this sort of convoluted way, but he's breaking out of her binary and he's saying that a day is coming when you will worship in spirit and truth. She wanted to know, where do I build the fence? And Jesus wanted her to come experience the wellspring of life where you will never thirst again. He says, don't focus on the wall. Focus on the well. He's concerned about orienting her towards the only source worth going to. And he says, and this is where I'll close, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, my prayer for us, for this church in this time, in this place, is that we would be known as a place that has the wellspring of eternal life, that would draw people in to experience water that quenches their thirst that they didn't even know they could experience. God, like the woman At the well, would would they leave this place and go tell their friends, hey, I've experienced the wellspring of life. And maybe they're going to ask them, well, what are the policies there? Or what are the walls? How do I know exactly what they believe about every single thing? And my prayer, God, is that that person will say, I don't know. But I've experienced life and you should come taste it. May it be so. Amen.